Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and today we're talking with Jerry Flores. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and today we're talking with Jerry Flores about his book, Caught Up, Girls, Surveillance, and Wraparound Incarceration. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, of course. So um, so let's see. What can I tell you about myself? Uh, so my name is Jerry Flores. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. And so, you know, I, th- I think that I always like to tell people that I took a bit of a non-traditional path to higher education. Um, so my parents, like, like so many other people, um, migrated to the United States around 1982 after one of the collapses of the Mexican economy. So they did so like so many other people that they move from Mexico and from any other country. I mean, they came to LA looking for a better life. And then our family before that had had ties to Los Angeles that almost went back 100 years. Um, so my grandparents on my dad's side had both come, worked in Los Angeles. My grandma would buy clothes and take them back to Mexico and sell them. My uh, grandpa was a trumpet player, so he'd been playing downtown LA when he was uh, younger and then just drive back across the border back when... Um, Things were a bit more fluid coming back and forth between the two countries. So I think that those experiences really shaped the person that I am and the person uh, that I became. So I grew up very working class, working poor, and this you know segregated community in Los Angeles. Almost everyone I grew up with was um, was Mexican, was working class. Um, so it's just kind of my my perspective uh, growing up. Um, you know, as a young person, I really really struggled with the educational system, like. You know, I, I think that I was eager, always eager about learning and about learning new things. But for whatever reason, the parameters of like K through 12 education in the U.S. didn't just seem to fit with me. Uh, the information seemed irrelevant. It seemed constricting. And so these feelings continued on as I went to, to middle school and to high school. And in high school, I ended up sort of dropping out eventually after basically just struggling in the educational arena most of my life. And I ended up at um, this alternative school in L.A. County where I basically had to take like three buses an hour and a half to get to my school, which was like a storefront with like five or six kids, a couple tables and like two teachers. Um, but here, you know, I was able to really benefit from individualized uh, education from teachers really showing me this like kind and compassionate uh, teaching approach. Um, and that's kind of when I got excited about education and when I started thinking about um, going to university and going to college. So, you know, I went to a couple different community colleges, first Pasadena City College and then Grossmont College. And I transferred to San Diego State University, where I focused in um, kind of on the connections between the educational and the penal system, so education and prisons. So I got a bachelor's degree there in sociology. Uh, I ended up getting into their master's program. And, you know, I was trying to follow this this like vein or this, this vignette of like passion that I had. And I ended up interviewing teachers that worked at male juvenile detention facilities right on the U.S.-Mexico border. So in San Diego and Tijuana, which is on the Mexico side. Um, so I interviewed about the I interviewed them about their teaching approach, um, their experiences providing education behind bars, and generally speaking, what that was like for them. Um, so after that, I ended up going um, to get a PhD at UC Santa Barbara, and you know, one of the f- last interviews I did for the master's project on uh, teachers behind bars, uh, you know, basically I was interviewing this this one man, and I asked them this question, which I feel like has really changed my academic trajectory, and it's my favorite question to ask. And it's, are there any questions that you thought I would ask you, but I didn't? And at that moment, you know, he said, yeah, you didn't ask me anything about teaching girls and, um, and lockup and teaching girls and teaching boys has its own set of challenges and benefits. You should really think about that. So I got it. The sociology department at UC Santa Barbara, they had a very strong emphasis on doing work related to social justice, which was a personal passion of mine, on doing work on gender and sexuality, which was new to me. So, you know, when I was there, I just decided to go ahead and start a project. Initially, that I, I was only really interested in looking at education, um, what it was like for girls to go to school behind bars. 
that was kind of my focal point. Uh, and after starting the project, after starting to do some field work, um, I started to realize that there was more going on in this space. So initially I went to a local detention center that I basically just kind of Googled, like detention centers in the area. I drove to the closest one. I started off by taking field notes or just taking notes in a parking lot. Then the next day I moved closer to a bench then to the lobby. And then I, I sent an email asking if I could be a volunteer. And then eventually sort of that became my dissertation project, which then in turn became the book. So, you know, I feel like a lot of folks kind of ask you, like, what was like the one significant like event in your whole life that inspired this project or that project or this idea or that idea? And I guess for me, I like to think of it as a holistic, uh, a holistic process or holistic experience where you never know which individual events, events, which people you meet, which things are going to sort of lead you to your next idea. And I feel like I've had so many of those things in the past, but you know, I, I firmly believe that all of these experiences and ideas are connected to the people we are, the people we used to be, the people that we become as academics, and also what's in, what we are passionate about and what's important to us. So I've tried to use that, I try to use that as a focal point for doing this kind of work. And one of my passions was trying, was trying to empower my community. And these young women that were locked up were very much a part of that community. So you know, I think as a whole, that's kind of how the book project uh, and my academic path came to be. Yeah, that's really interesting because I actually was going to bring up the appendix. Um, I I actually found the appendix to be really interesting on its own as a sort of a freestanding document um, because you talk a lot about your own personal development and sort of that you also had, um, you, you know, you'd said you'd gone to an alternative school as well. And, and I thought that that was really interesting in terms of being reflexive uh, with your data. So I wonder if you could actually start us off by talking about that a little bit, like how, you know, when you were sort of navigating, I think one of the things that you talked about in the appendix as well is sort of like, you're a guy and these are girls and sexualization is a big part of their life. And that comes up a lot in the book, you know, and how you sort of navigated that. Yeah. Um, thanks. You know, it's a, uh... The appendix was actually one thing that I had been meaning to write, but I didn't write it um, for my dissertation. And I think that my dissertation was committee was very um, diplomatic and sort of letting me finish the project and letting me take a, a job. My, my first job was at the teaching branch of the University of Washington, but they sort of they sort of like planted that seed and told me, like, look, you need to be reflexive. So, you know, I worked with Nikki Jones, Jack Sutton, Victor Rios, and Denise Segura, and um, almost all of them had just really adopted these very like deep, reflexive, reflective approaches to doing ethnographic work. And so they encouraged me to do that, um, even though I, I didn't do that for the dissertation. But, you know, they said, leave it for the book project. And, you know, I was starting this new position at the University of Washington. I was in a new city. I had lived in Southern California my whole life. So I was having all these different transitions. And at the same time, my partner and I had had our first son, who's four years old now. And now we have a four-year-old and two-year-old twins. Um, so, you know, I have this small child. I'm thinking about my power, my privilege, how my life is beginning to change now that I'm a father. And I'm tasked with writing this methodological appendix, which I think I sort of have been putting off because I didn't quite know how to approach it. I was grappling with it for a long way. I didn't want it to be too self-indulgent, but I also wanted to be transparent. I wanted people to understand what the challenges were like. And that also was one of the questions that I got at almost every talk that I did when I ever did research. It's like, Jerry, you're a man. You know, what is it like for you to do research with young women? Right. So, you know, I sat at this one coffee shop and I was like, let's write this bad boy up. So I sat down, I had created a folder or sort of like a code that talked about all the times that my gender complicated or affected things. And, you know, I think one of the pieces that I try to talk about first and foremost was the fact that, you know, my privilege facilitated a lot of my success in the setting. Um, and it started off when I went to go talk to, to the principal who was sort of in charge of the school that existed inside of the detention center. Um, and he would say stuff to me like, you know, the girls are a positive male role model. They would benefit from you so much. Like, we'd be happy to have you. And, you know, I didn't say it then, but I was thinking like, there's so many passionate and dedicated women here. Like, what makes my general like masculinity that much more valuable to these young women yeah, versus another woman who's kind and compassionate, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's that aspect of it. Um, you know, I just, I had, I had to go through this process. Like the first day that I started doing research, you know, I even named the book this, like, or the appendixes, which is like, who's this man in the classroom, right? So I'm sitting in this class full of girls. All these young women are trying to figure out who I am. And this girl's like, you know, who's this man? What's he doing here? 
And so I immediately sort of like asked the teacher if I can introduce myself. And I said, look, like, I know I'm a man. I know men suck sometimes. I'm sorry. And I'm going to do my best not to, not to be one of those people. So, you know, part of it, and, a, and it took me several, several months to accomplish this, was the fact that I had to basically convince these young women, one, that I wasn't a law enforcement agent or a probation officer that was sort of like out to get them or out to like catch and snare them in some like legal web. And the second part was, uh, you know, I had to convince them that I wasn't this predatory man that was here to sort of take advantage of them. And so I think this would happen. Like, I feel like there would be these like micro tests or micro interactions that would happen regularly where young women would come up to me and say, hey, um, first they wouldn't ask me if I was married, but they would ask me if I had kids. So it was like, do you have kids? Do you have a girlfriend? Are you married? It's before I got married, so I don't have a wedding band. Um, you know, like, what are you doing here? How old are you, right? And I started realizing that asking me how old I was, how old I was, was sort of like them gauging to see if, like, what was what, you know? Right. Is this guy like interested in some romantic relationship? Like, like, what's going on here? And it got to the point where like I would get these questions so often, especially when new women would come in, that girls would be like. The girls that I had already known for a while would be like, he's married, he has a kid, and he's 29. He's not like that. <laughs> and they would sort of like take care of the situation, right? And then right. we would like transition on to other topics and I would tell them what I was doing. Um, so there was that aspect of it. And I think that there was just like, I guess like just describing them as a series of tests are the best way that I can describe it. Like in the appendix, I talk about how young women, one young woman told me, who was like my primary respondent, mentioned to me that, you know, one of the priests at the detention center had been inappropriate with her. And initially, you know, she was like, please don't say anything. You know, me as a compassionate person, and as I, frankly, as someone that had um, suffered from sexual abuse as a child, um, my first go-to was like, okay, I won't say anything, right? I'll keep your secret. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of like going back after that visit and knowing that I had to say something, right. like not only stirred up all these like negative trauma that I hadn't dealt with, like I eventually ended up telling my parents about it a couple of months ago. You know, after I was like 30 plus years old, I have three kids. Um, but I was just trying to, I was trying to deal with, with me. I was trying to deal with the situation. So, you know, I ended up contacting my committee and my partner, who's a special education teacher. Um, and she's like, you're a court mandated reporter. You already know you have to report this. So, you know, what I ended up doing was I went home, I contacted the principal, I asked him to give me about a day to let me sort of smooth out the situation. And he was very um, accommodating. So I remember I went home, I tried to sleep. I went on a jog. I woke up the next day. I went to a coffee shop. I bought the biggest cookie I could find. Uh, and then I drove back to the detention center. And I was like, hey, you know, I brought you this cookie. There's a lot of complications around this. And we don't know if this person is trying to hurt anybody else or he, or if he has hurt people. Mm-hmm. So we need to say something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Felice, who was her code name in the book, said to me, yeah, I understand. I'm just afraid that they're not going to believe me again because she had been victimized by a group of boys in the past and no one believed her. Oh, wow. Um, she'd been drugged and victimized. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she eventually was like, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And so I had several young women come to me after that and say, you know, Felice told me about this. Thank you so much for saying something. Like, it was keeping me up at night. And, you know, there was just like a series of events where these things would take place. And, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't just interactions with them. It was like how these young women would, would watch me. They would see how I would interact with other women that were my age. So they would see how I would interact with their teacher, other teachers, um, jail administrators, how I would, I would interact with corrections officers. Like, you know, there's a part of the appendix where I talk about how there was a corrections officer who, you know, she was about my age. She was very interesting. She was funny. Um, and she would just like periodically invite me out to like a cup of coffee or for a drink um, you know, I would always kind of like dodge it or say I wasn't interested. And I remember one time she got mad. She's like, Hey, like, you know, can you come to happy hour or, or te va a pegar tu vieja? Which means like, are you going to come to happy hour or is your old lady going to beat you up? Right. Right. Sort of like challenging my general masculinity. It's like, you know, who's the boss in this relationship? Are you the boss? Like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to let her treat you like that? Um, and I, I think that after I was like, nah, like, you know, I tried to, I tried to like brush it off with humor. I was like, nah, I'm like washing my hair. I can't come out. Um, you know, or I'd be like, no, I'm at a pomade. I have to go to the, you know, to the beauty salon or something. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting how many of them come up, right. You know, um, 
when you're doing ethnography, like, and and that's what I really liked about the appendix is you're sort of like bringing these all up because I think sometimes it's what people have a lot of questions about, right? Like, what was it like? Like, how were you interacting? So I thought it was just sort of a really comprehensive um, and thorough discussion of those issues. And especially in light of your book, you know, like you were talking about the sexual abuse and things like that. So yeah, and you know, it's really something that I wanted to write about in the book. And I just alluded to it briefly in like one or two sentences, but I just frankly couldn't muster the courage. Like I wasn't quite ready to, like, I felt like if I talk about it in the book, then I got to tell my parents about it. And it's going to be really, really, like, it's going to become real, right? So. Right. Um, but I think it's interesting, right? Because we're, as researchers, we're human too. And, and we often don't get that chance to sort of think about the relation to our subjects and, and, th- and things like that. So I really um, thought your appendix, for anybody who's listening, <laughs> you should read the <laughs> appendix, uh, which is sort of a nerd thing to say, but I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Um, but I was hoping yeah, you could read sort that of... first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Start there and work backwards. Um, but I was hoping, like, one of the things I really liked about your introduction is you sort of paint this picture of the surroundings and the experience of the detention center. And I was sort of hoping you could give us like that sort of visual and the sort of background of like how that tied to the community day school. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk, let's start with like the kind of like the setting, right. Which ethnographers often call it. And then we could talk about wraparound services. So, you know, I think some of the first and foremost, you know, I remember being an undergraduate student at San Diego state and my qualitative research methods, professor Sally Netsley would say to me, like, look, qualitative research cannot be boring. Like at the very least, it should be interesting. So try to captivate the reader, right? Try to give us something. Like use your like use these like envision the paper that you're writing, like is one kind of really long hook sentence, right? Like how are you gonna pull the reader in and keep them engaged when they could be doing so many different things? Um so some of the books that I've read that were the most fascinating to me provided these like wonderful backdrops of where you are right so nikki jones did this was my mentor in her book between good and ghetto like she really made me feel like i was in in inner city philadelphia i had never been i went this year and i was like oh this is totally what she was describing it's right here you know victor rios does this in his book too where he's able to paint this like vivid and multi-dimensional depiction of east oakland um and i hadn't been to east oakland until this year as well and that's when I was like, you know, oh, OMG, this is exactly it, right? This is a neighborhood he's talking about. These are the faded murals on the wall. This is what the sunshine feels like when it gets a bit too high and it starts to sort of like give you that thin sting on your skin, right? So I was like, okay, I'm in this space where it's kind of like, if you were to look at it from the outside, you would just kind of see like a Latino community and then sort of like a beach town. And it's like, so how do I, how do I transport people from where they are, whether they're in... Western Ontario, Newfoundland, Toronto, Miami. Like, how do I get them to this space? And how do I make them feel like like they're here? And how do I do that in a way where I'm harnessing our five senses as much as possible, right? Like, how do you describe the subtle saltiness of the Pacific Ocean to someone who's never experienced it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like sight, fishy smell. You kind of taste my tongue a bit, right? Yeah. It's like saltwater taffy, you know, like, for someone who's never lived in California, how do I explain to them that, hey, it is always sunny here, and that's fine, you know, that's cool, sometimes it gets a bit old, right, but fine, you know, static, so I was like, oh, this is this is static sunshine, it's a sunshine that never goes away, like, there's no seasons here, it's just like we're in an eternal sunny purgatory, if we want to call it that, um, so I wanted to be able to have someone feel like they were in the community, and, you know, whenever I read something, whether it be fiction, whether it be in ethnography, I like details. I like to know what things look like. I like to be able to close my eyes and imagine myself in this space. So I think doing that, describing the ocean, describing the sunshine, we could very easily envision this place as being paradise, right? But what happens when you're on the other side of the freeway or in that neighborhood or on the other side of the tracks? What does that look like for people who live here? So, you know, I think if we were just to give give the town a cursory view, we wouldn't really understand the inner workings of, you know, wraparound services, for example. So, you know, I think that in California, this has been this concerted effort to try to address the issue of like mass incarceration, the fact that there's so many people in different forms of detention centers, whether it be adult prison, 
juvenile detention centers, whether they've been probation or parole, they're on some kind of like state surveillance. State surveillance is becoming so costly that the California can no longer afford it. They can no longer afford to do what they've been doing for such a long time, which is also a big part of the impetus, right? Like you can see that in California realignment with the state of California shifting like sort of like prisoners from California state prisons to local jails, local jails that are not are not equipped to handle people for long periods. Like in the California context, in most places in the U.S., similar, I think, to, to Ontario, if you're in a jail, you can be there for like 365 days or less. You're not, they're not designed to hold people long term. Right? But when you have these like movements, it becomes complicated. And a lot of times uh, these shifts are pushed due to like budgetary issues. There not being enough money, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, as a whole, wraparound services was a way to try to help children and families keep their kids out of jail. And I think the actual definition is like it's a concerted effort to provide services and supports to children and family at school, in the community, and behind bars, right? Mm-hmm. And the the goal of wraparound services is to keep young people at home with informal supports, right? Keep them at home. They may have a probation officer touching base with them periodically, but they are supposed to stay out of the out of the web, out of like the whatever we want to call it, the prison industrial complex, the youth control complex, the like prison leviathan, whatever. Like keep them away from the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system. Um, you know, as I talk about in the book, you know, I sort of describe it as these unintended consequences because on paper, wraparound services are, are really altruistic. They're really sort of designed to help young people be successful. But, you know, I'm arguing that some of these connections that have been created between the detention center that I describe and also the, um, the alternative school that, where, I, where I did field work as well, you know, basically wrap, wraparound supports and wraparound services are falling short of their intended goal. Um, and they're actually starting to hurt young people more than help them. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because you say the point of the wraparound services is to sort of keep them at home. But that's sort of the interesting thing about how you open up the book in chapter one is that sometimes the home environment is kind of the problem, right? Like not to make such a a broad sweep of it, but, you know, you kind of talk about these girls are coming from these situations where there's oftentimes physical, sexual or emotional abuse or there's even drug connections at home. And so that's sort of how they start off actually into the system. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I I've, I think I've heard this argument so many times where it's just like, I think it's it's definitely more of an American-based argument that goes something along the lines of like, well, maybe these, um, you know, it all starts in the family, right? Like the family needs to take care of these kids. They need to do this. They need to do that. And then I'm like, okay, well, that's sort of a very one-dimensional understanding of what's happening here, right? If you're an adolescent person, right, say you're 14 or 15, Legally, you cannot move out. Legally, you cannot have a job. Um, you cannot get an ID. You can't move on. Like, what do you do if you're trapped in a home where you're experiencing abuse or mistreatment? Right? How does this like understanding of, of like the family or like this notion of like making good choices fit into this context? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, additionally, something we don't always talk about is the fact that you know. Some, some, like some of these parents, like I start, I always like to think about like, what are some of like the micro, meso, and macro factors that influence people's behavior, right? Sort of a part of what we do as a sociologist. So the micro, I think I was able to describe quite well. Um, the meso level, the mid level, um, you know, when we talk about families, is it like, look, a lot of these parents are working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, right? Just to sort of like try to keep their head above water, right? Mm. They're trying to do their best to fulfill their basic needs. When they get home, they're not always super worried about what their kids are doing or what they're up to. Or, you know, maybe they were raised in an environment where they themselves were treated this way, were mistreated. So, you know, it's such a it's such it's such a tough it's such a tough thing to grapple with, but you know, it, it just was such an overarching theme of the data that I collected that, you know, some of basically like young women and their path into the criminal justice system oftentimes start at the home. And this was a, a bit of a surprise to me because when I first started this book, I was thinking about it almost entirely as um, this idea of, or in the context of like uh, issues related to the school to prison pipeline, 
which basically just describe how, you know, given increase in, in policing, especially in the U.S. context, like more police at school, more drug, more uh, drug sniffing dogs, more metal detectors, like schools are becoming more like more like prisons, right? So these are where kids are going to start getting arrested. And I firmly believe that most of the kids in my study were going to be arrested at school. And that actually ended up not being the case. Like a lot of them initially ended up getting in trouble at home because they fought with their parents, because they tried to run away from abuse, because of so many other factors. So, you know, it was kind of like I was trying to walk a thin line between not blaming parents or not blaming like Latino or Mexican families, but showing the fact that the these things are happening, right? Right. Um, so, you know, I was kind of like, so sort of a, I felt like I was walking a tightrope there. Right. Well, there's this line on page 46 that I thought was really powerful. And you said, girls' survival strategies are criminalized. And I thought that was like the sort of the perfect articulation of what was happening here is like, they're just trying to do their best in a family that's just trying to do their best. But unfortunately, you know, it oftentimes means that they're going to run away from home and then that gets them caught or they get involved in a relationship that's not healthy. Um yeah, so I thought the discussion in chapter one, especially of like violating norms, and um, that was really interesting. Yeah, so I mean, I think the like feminist criminologists have talked about this uh, for a long time. And then, you know, I also want to just mention before I forget is the fact that, you know, feminist criminologists and like women in particular have been doing this kind of work for a long time. Like, you know, we could think about like Mita Chesney Lynn in 1984, I think. 1984 started talking about the experiences of young women uh, behind bars young women of the criminal justice system you have people like lisa pasco katie Irwin, nikki jones who have done this work who've been saying very similar things but i will say that you know i want to go ahead and acknowledge my privilege as a man and say that you know i think that because i was a man doing this work that inevitably i will probably receive i will receive more attention i'm gonna get more attaboys right right you know i haven't told you how, like i've had a lot of like especially you know um how do i say this diplomatically i've just had people come up to me and be like oh thank you for this work and i'm just like you know you're welcome but there's been people who've been doing this work for a really really long time yeah. right who haven't received the same recognition or the same attention mm-hmm. um so i think that's that's kind of like that's important to know but going back to like these like these survival strategies like you know i think i can't remember who exactly said this but um she describes how young women oftentimes um, are forced into a couple of different things like they're basically required to think of like sexual solutions for non-sexual problems and so we see that in the book right like you mentioned a young woman having to get into an abusive relationship to have somewhere to stay to escape home um and i think that that sort of like is connected to to some of the strategies that young women like use to, to evade abuse, right? Like right. Uh, some, some of them become sex workers. Some of them trade intimacy with, with a partner they might not like to have someone to stay or to have a, a, a few meals to eat, um, et cetera. So, you know, unfortunately, like their survival strategies are very gendered and oftentimes expose them to just multiple forms of violence um, on the street. So, yeah, it's it's a tough one, but you know, I think it's something that we keep in mind that when young women leave or run away, it's not just because they want to go have fun. Like being out for a day, maybe actually probably about about at about hour twelve, you're probably ready to come home, right? There's only so like many shenanigans you could partake in where you're just like, All right, man, like can't drink anymore, I can't smoke anymore, I'm hungry, I need a shower, right. I need to go back, right? So I think that when we start we when we start thinking about some of these issues, like why are young women running away? You know, we could think about the Canadian context, like why do women of color decide that they need to go hitchhike? Like what's going on, right? What are they running away from? Like what are they trying to get to? And one of the most important questions I think is like, are we able to, are we meeting young women's basic needs? Um, And if we're not, then I think it's sort of time to take a step back and try to understand why that's not the case. Into to, to chapter two, you sort of get into life behind bars. And so here what's sort of fascinating is that some of them actually start engaging in violence even more so after they enter the facility. And you sort of reference this group called the Shot Callers. And what was really interesting about them is they actually get different treatment in the system, right? So not only among the girls, but they also get different treatment in the system. So I was hoping you could sort of talk about them. Sure. So, I mean... um I think that was kind of like, that was one of those things where I showed up in this space. I really wasn't super interested in violence or like, 
kind of like the deployment of violence within this particular context. Um, like I said, when I first started, I was really only interested in, you know, what is it like for young women to get an education in this space? But as soon as I showed up, like my first meeting, my first day of doing field work, all like all I heard from correctional staff and from other adults in the area is like, oh, the girls are so much worse than the boys. They're always fighting. Like, you know, they're like bad girls. This, this isn't how young lady. This isn't how ladies are supposed to behave. Um, <clears throat> so I was like, you know, I think I need to sort of like start to unravel some of these issues around like the use of violence. Um, so I just did like a quick search um, or a quick, you know, the, the the jail provided me some some just like general information they collected, like how many fights happen a day and stuff. And I found out that in reality, boys were fighting way more often than girls. But girls seemed to be the ones that were sort of like blamed or, or yeah, they're blamed for, for causing all these fights all the time. Um, and so, you know, in the book, I talk about how that's directly related to young women violating gendered expectations uh, for girls and fighting, right? Good girls don't fight. Ladies don't fight. They behave themselves, right? If you're like a young Latina, you know, corrections officers will be like, you're making all you're making all of us. So all Latinas look bad by behaving this way, by being incarcerated. But, you know, once I got past that part, I was like, all right, let me sort of try to understand what's happening here. Is this just violence for the sake of violence or what's going on? And I remember doing one interview um, with a young woman and she just told me straight up. She's like, look, like. I need to fight here in order to make sure that I'm safe. Right. Like if some girl is talking shit, I can't just let her slide. I have to do something about it. So. You know, that, that like quote kind of caught my attention. I was like, well, what do you mean? What's going on? And, you know, I began to realize that there was a whole group of young women that had kind of like formed this particular this particular group that they used as, um, you know, I, I talk about fighting as an investment and in keeping yourself safe, even though you have to endure like short-term punishment, right? So, you know, if you show up and other girls in the unit know that you're a capable fighter and that you're willing to fight for any kind of transgression, then other people will defer to you. They will treat you with respect. They won't, you know, they will not treat you poorly. So I think that's that's sort of like the, the payoff for that initial investment. And additionally, like you had talked about, I noticed that when some of these young women like were fighting, like some corrections officers would sort of like go, go be like, say stuff like, damn, you beat her ass. That's what's up. And like give you snacks, right? right. Or like sort of acknowledge you as like a leader, a leader in this unit, a leader in this detention center and someone that they can go to uh, to ask questions or to sort of get the feel of what was happening. So, you know, even though these young women were punished for fighting by putting being put in, like, solitary confinement, um, being denied, like, you know, a movie night or some snacks, like, they at the same time were being rewarded by these same institutional actors. So, you know, I think that's what I found, more like, most fascinating about it. And the fact that, you know, like, criminologists have talked about this a long time. When you're locked up, even if you want to overtly avoid violence or avoid that kind of behavior... It becomes almost impossible. Like you were sucked into like this culture. You know, we have like we used to have this old, like kind of like not vignette, but this old like sub like sub area of study in sociology called prison ethnography. And so you would have people like um, was Skykes and a couple other folks uh, who would write books like Prison Society or like Society of Captives. These really really vivid like ethnographies that happen behind bars. Like back in the day when detention centers had enough money to like hire a sociologist, right? Mm -hmm. To try to understand the inner, work, the inner workings of what was happening. And so I was trying to like kind of not revive that, but like play on this, right? Like it's a bit old school almost like where we talk about the different identities that are formed in these spaces um, and how those identities shift, right? Um, and so, you know, I think, I think that, that that was one of the things that I found the most surprising. And I think when I started understanding kind of like, the use value or the value of fighting in this space, you know, I think it dawned on me that this became a project that wasn't just about education behind bars or it wasn't just like an interesting story about one detention center, but it was sort of starting to unravel. And that by far has been one of the most wonderful things about ethnography and about becoming an ethnographer is that you show up with, some people have like a working hypothesis, right? But, you know, I, I took like this kind of like grounded theory approach where I showed up just basically with an interest and I let the field sort of tell me what it was going to tell me. And sometimes, you know, like you have to learn to listen to your data and understand what's happening. Right. And when I did, I ended up stumbling upon this huge story where it's like we have fighting behind bars, we have trouble in the home, 
we have this connection between an alternative school and the detention center. We have corrections officers who may be like, who for the most part are really like chill and nice people, but that really doesn't stop them from like punching a young woman in the face. Right. right. And these are some of like, I think that the nuances and the complexities that, that I've began to understand as, as I've, you know, began to get a couple more years under my belt where I'm like, yeah, you know, people are real cool, but like it doesn't stop them from doing questionable things sometimes. So. Mm-hmm. Well, then I think this sort of ties well with sort of the the legacy community school and this the what you call the new face of alternative education. I mean, these these girls are being constantly surveilled, right? Like the drug testing, the you know everything that's happening to them. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting because I mean, you I, this maybe was a small point in your book, but it really struck me as sort of you know teenagers fuck up a lot. <laughs> Um, yes, they do these, constantly. Yeah, yeah, and I always think about this with Facebook, like, right? I'm always like, thank God that was not around when I was a teenager, like, because that would all be documented. But the interesting thing is, they are monitored at, you know, in the prison. They're monitored at school, at this alternative school, so they're just being constantly monitored. Um, in one of your interviews, uh, she even called it a game, right? Where you start over again and again because, like, you have the smallest infraction, and then that starts you at zero again. So I was sort of hoping you could talk about like the surveillance and this sort of, you know, like how it just is like all encompassing basically. Yeah. So, um, you know, let me start off like uh, back, back in the detention center. I mean, I, I was in this space. I had been doing field work for about a year, right? At that point, I was starting, in my opinion, I was starting to reach something called like a level of saturation, which is basically a fancy way of saying like, I'm, I'm just seeing the same stuff over and over and over. Right. And that is one of the signals to an ethnographer that perhaps it's time to take a step back, to take a break from doing field work, or to sort of leave the site um, and, and start writing your manuscript. Um, for a lot of people, it's also the point where you have to make a very difficult decision, which is, one, do I want to join this particular cultural group in this space, or do I want to leave and write this book, right? So it's a decision that I thought about for a long time, like, would I do more good finishing my PhD and becoming a teacher in the space and providing education to these young women. And, you know, I had been a substitute teacher. I had taught high school exit exam prep courses. I have, like, a substitute teaching credential. In California, they call it, like, an emergency credential. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a foundation, and then I had taught classes at UC Santa Barbara. I had taught inside a jail. I had taught the girls that I was doing work with. Um, so, you know, I kind of had to make that decision. As, as I'm kind of contemplating this, I remember this one, uh, kind of, like, Latino man in his 40s, Walked into the detention center. I was like, hey, you know, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm a volunteer. and I'm doing some research here. He's like, oh, what's your major? And I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting a PhD in sociology, and I'm trying to study education behind bars. He's like, oh, you know, you should really come to this alternative school. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you know, these two places are connected. We have the same students. And I was like, all right. Oh, interesting. So, I, yeah, so I was like, okay. I was like, when can I come? He's like, oh, whenever. He's like, you want to come next Tuesday? And I was like, all right, cool. So, you know, we set it up. He said he was going to give me a tour and you know i emailed my uh chair just to see what she thought and she said yeah jerry go ahead you know see where the field takes you uh so you know nikki told me to kind of like follow what was going on and i sort of got the clearance from human subjects and then i decided to go about it so you know i went over there and when i showed up i basically ran into all of the same kids that were locked it was like all of them they were the same ones um, and within, and basically this school, which I call, um, I think I'll, I call it pathway or legacy, legacy, I think legacy, I'm, legacy. Um, you know, I'm at legacy. And as I said in the book, like legacy is like the last stop in California public education. This is where they send all of the quote bad kids. Like there's nowhere else to go. This is the last school for you. So they send everybody, nobody else wants. So I show up in the school and I'm kind of taking it in. I'm like, okay, this is fascinating. And then I go into one particular classroom and they call it the recuperation classroom. Um, right. That was really fascinating, and then I, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm in this alternative school. I already see all these bad kids. And then I go into the special classroom, which literally all of the girls and all the boys I had seen from the detention center, like the specific detention center where I was, not just like other detention centers in the area. Um, and so I was like, you know, what's going on here? And I go talk to the teacher and she's like, oh, you know, like, the kids here have all been locked up at the place where you were visiting. She's like, they all are doing the same work, the same worksheets, the same workbooks. They're all moving at the same pace and getting the same instruction as the kids who are locked up, right? Um, what was fascinating about this classroom is that it had a probation officer inside of it, stationed inside. 
he had an office with like you know that two-way glass that we oftentimes see in like police shows when someone's being interrogated Mm -hmm. where like the person being questioned can't see outside but all the police on the other side can see inside so he had that like two-way glass in his office nobody knew when he was there when he wasn't but when he was there he would walk around and check in with the kids he would ask them questions about how they were doing at school what they were doing beforehand he would often do police investigations and he would regularly pull them out and drug test them so if a kid had had a beer, if they had smoked marijuana, I mean, it tasted positive, he would take them directly from that classroom to the, de- to the detention center, which was only maybe five kilometers away, 10 kilometers away. It was quite close. So um, not very far away. Um, so I began to see, I was like, wait, like these kids, not only are they in detention where they're constantly surveilled, now they're in this classroom where basically everything they do whenever they make a mistake. And as you said, and as we said, like kids fuck up, like, but here, because kids have so much attention from this from this probation officer and from other um, criminal justice agents, anytime they slip up, they're caught and they're punished via the criminal justice system. So, you know, I found this really fascinating dynamic where I'm like, dude, you know, and according to these this partnership, according to these two institutions, Legacy and um, El Valle, they refer to this as providing wraparound services. And I said, you know what? Like, this isn't this isn't wraparound surveillance. This is a wraparound incarceration. Right. Um. And so I think that's when I was like, oh, man, like, I just kind of like, I've uncovered like this whole new kind of like, um, like epic current and, and like surveillance and then punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I need to follow up on this. And so, you know, for a while, I kind of like uh, tapered off my visits to the detention center and started uh, visiting uh, Legacy more often. And so I got to see a lot of these same dynamics and I got to pick up um, new data and understand like the, the what was happening in the space um, in, in new and significant ways and in dynamic ways. And it actually kind of gave me information for a couple like different chapters that didn't make it into the book. Um, one of which was like just discussing, um, kind of like building on, on the work of Alice Kaufman and, and sort of black men that go on the run in Philadelphia. I talked about what it was like uh, for young Latinas to go on the run within this particular space. And, you know, that was just one of the chapters that didn't fit into the book manuscript. So it became a standalone article. Interesting. Cool. Well, the, the, something that the interviewees themselves brought up is they sometimes felt more comfortable in that smaller environment, right? And this ties really well with Chapter 5 where you talk about traditional schools. And oftentimes these young girls are labeled as at-risk or problem students. And there was even one interviewee who said, you know, that like one of their teachers said something basically like, you shouldn't even be here and it's like, well, no wonder they don't want to be there or act out, you know. And so I thought I thought it was really interesting to think about traditional schools and sort of this being labeled and treated as a problem often exacerbates their problems, right? Like it makes it worse. Yeah, it does. So, you know, I think like, and again, you know, I, I really thought that there was, like I feel like when I first started the project, there was like going to be, like I had a clear cut idea of what I thought was happening. And then when I went to my data and I started looking at my analysis, it was like completely different. So I never expected young women to feel the way that they did when they went back to traditional school. So a lot of them, that was like, that was kind of like what they were looking forward to. It's like, I need to work hard. I need to get out of here. But when they would go back, they were met with these huge formal and informal challenges, right? Teachers telling you like, why are you coming here? I don't want you here. Like, I'm going to call your probation officer. Like, assuming they were, like, cholas or gang members because of makeup, because of, like, Latino culture or Latino aesthetics, right? The way that they would dress, the way they would carry themselves. Um, you know, and we, we've seen this before where young Latinos communi- Latinos and communities of color have been criminalized due to, like, their garb or their dress. We saw that, we saw this with uh, Zoot Suiters. And I think, what was that, right after World War One-ish, like, 30s or 40s? Mm-hmm. I think it was 40s. Um, we're basically like they're referred to the zoot suit riots in Southern California. But what it was, was basically like hordes and hordes of like white sailors uh, attacking Mexicans um, and sexually assaulting Mexican women, beating up like like Mexican men. Um, and basically like they were blamed for it, right? Because they were adopting these, like they would wear suits and they were considered very flashy. So these white soldiers would say stuff like, oh, you think you're more important than the war, you know, like enlist, like stop dressing up like this, stop going to dances, like. There's just like very ra- like racialized, racialized ideas and racialized forms of punishment that continue to you know influence like continue to affect uh, young people. Like being bald, wearing a big white shirt and big baggy pants does not make you a criminal, right? Right. That's just a fashion choice. It might, yes, it's a fashion choice to get you more attention, but it's not a criminal act. Um, 
So young women would have this, and not only not only that, but you know, a lot of them. I think Felice did a good job of describing this, and she would just say, or Felice or some, someone else. I think it was Sandra. I say like, look, man, like I'm I've been institutionalized, like. I'm not comfortable going to a school where there's 500 students, 2,000 students. Like it gives me anxiety. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like someone that bumps into me at a detention center, I would I would whoop her ass. But here, they just bumped into me on accident, and they don't know how to differentiate that. They've been institutionalized. They've been in these at legacy or El Valle for so long that they really can't function. They can't function back at these traditional schools. So they would go for for the few that did make it back. They would go and then they would just end up crashing and burning. Right? Like even the ones that were successful, the ones that were able to graduate, most of them graduated inside of the detention center or at Legacy. Right. Like going to traditional school just wasn't just wasn't viable. It wasn't possible anymore. It was too much. Um, so you know something I talk about is the fact that a lot of these young women are punished, but they're not necessarily given the resources once they leave to be a successful community member. Right. They don't have the support of a social worker that's going to help them with this transition. Even a basic, like, here's an introduction to life outside of, like, incarceration. You know, just because someone sits in a place where you were sitting yesterday doesn't make it your seat. And it doesn't mean that they're trying to fight you or disrespect you, you know. And for someone who's been incarcerated for a long time, that's very serious. And it's a serious offense. And behind bars, it's a breach that needs to be dealt with accordingly and right. swiftly. Mm-hmm. At school... Not so much. Right. You sit somewhere else. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things um, here in Chapter 5 that you kind of point out is like, I think as sociologists, we often focus on the negative right, the, the negative outcomes, right? But here you sort of talk about that success is possible, but there's certain things that the young women need. Um, so, you know, I mean, one of the things that really struck me and like the word that sort of stuck in my head was like stability and then time away from the system. It's sort of what you were just talking about, like the more time they had away from the system and in these other, you know, areas, the better their outcomes. So I was hoping you could sort of talk about what you found to be positive outcomes or what helped them have positive outcomes. Yeah. So I mean, a couple of different things. Like one is basically what I argue is like, look, like as we talked about, kids make mistakes. Um, It happens, right? And this happens to kids who are poor. This happens to kids that are well off, right? But perhaps are more insulated. They might live in a gated community. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about police coming in. They might live in a far off suburb where, you know, everybody knows each other. And if, you know, the sheriff's like your dad's friend. And if someone picks you up drunk, they just take you home and, you know, let your dad deal with it versus you. Right. Um, so basically what I argue is like for these young people, the more contact they have with the criminal justice system, the worse it's going to be for them because they they've had challenging experiences at home. They've been incarcerated. A lot of them have underlying mental health issues, um, which I wasn't able to discuss that much, but. I'm writing a separate, like, standalone article with a colleague of mine at UC Santa Cruz, Katy uh, Barajona Lopez, um, about pharmaceutical use behind bars and mental health issues for these young people. Um, and so what we, what we have here, what we need is, like, we need to give them some space where their behaviors, are not, their behaviors and their mistakes will not be criminalized. And I'm not talking about, like, committing murder or robbing a bank. I'm talking about, like, smoking marijuana. Right. Perhaps because they're like self-medicating for anxiety or, or other issues. I'm talking about staying out too late one night or not going to school for a few days. This is what I'm talking about. You know, something else that I discussed is the fact that for some of these young people, like when you have probation officers and police, like if you can convince these young people that you have their best interests at heart, that will be beneficial to both you and them. Even if you arrest them, they'll be like, you know what? I deserved it. I shouldn't have been out that late. Like, I think it's about investing in these young people and their perceptions of you. Because in lots of different places, communities, not just children, but also adults, do not view criminal justice agents or police as agents of social change or as positive forces in their community, right? Because of how they behave, because of things that have happened in the past, et cetera, et cetera. So... That And then I think for some young women, like becoming pregnant at a specific time, so usually 16 or 17 if they have supports at home, becoming, becoming a ba- uh, having a baby, becoming pregnant was like a catalyst uh, for them sort of like becoming sober and um, getting away from the criminal justice system. And again, people have talked about like becoming pregnant for a very, very long time. Um, 
Peggy Giordano talks about it quite a bit as well. And that could be beneficial. But if you have a baby when you're too young, it destabilizes you even more. Right. Um, so I think so. those are some of like the posi- like kind of like positive uh, interventions and the positive things that we can do. And just, you know, I did my best to try to end or conclude the book or try to just at the end of every chapter provide low cost, no cost strategies that any adult that's invested in these young people can use to try to be successful, right? Uh, one of them is just adopting a kind and compassionate approach to whatever it is that you do, right? And I know that's hard, especially when you get to know someone, um, but that's really, really important, especially when you interact with young people that have been hurt or that have underlying issues that might not be visible, right? Right. Yeah, I thought your conclusion, I actually just want to read the sentence from your conclusion. Um, yeah, so you said, this book sheds light on the unintended consequences of wraparound incarceration and how this well-intentioned service complicates the lives of young Latinas negotiating the American educational and penal system. And I thought that that was just like the perfect thesis sentence for this whole thing, right? Because you're not saying that these uh, uh, wraparound services like are out to get these girls, but unintentionally it just gives them more systems to be involved in basically and more, more areas to be surveilled. Um, so I was hoping that you could sort of give us like what you, after doing this project and sort of, you know, what you're thinking about now, like what really you want um, readers to take away from your book. Yeah. So I think I want, I want readers to, to understand, especially folks that perhaps don't have, experience with some of these young people that might have like more of a negative view of these young women i think i would remind them like look these are children these are adolescents right like i've seen a girl as young as nine years old be incarcerated oh wow um, but these are these are mostly girls who are like 12 13 14 15 16 17 years old they're at one of the most important points in their development they're still children they're still trying to figure it out but yet they are saddled with very, very adult decisions and tasks, right? Mm-hmm. They have to negotiate not only perhaps trouble at home, being incarcerated, trying to go to school. And so these are young people that for the most part want to do well. They want to be successful in the traditional way that we think of being successful. Graduate high school, start a family, get a job, go to college. But they frankly just don't have the access available to them. Right? Um, in places in California where public education is continues to be cut almost every year and in the u.s as a whole you know we have to understand like what happens when we cut social services when we cut social safety nets when we continue to cut public education right? who's benefiting are we benefiting as a populace right like not only that i mean we're basically asking young women to take control and to take responsibility of their actions almost entirely by themselves mm-hmm. like to keep themselves safe and they're 14 or 15 years old this this is just it's not fair it's it's not right it's i mean not to get too moralistic but you know we can argue that this is a general shortcoming in our society and it's something that we need to address Mm -hmm. the fact that we're not giving children the ability to live a successful life right so i think that there's that you know i think people who read the book perhaps could like be reflective and think about you know what is it that i can do to help and i'm not talking about helping like on a on Helping in any way you can, right? Whether it be making, like, I did I did this with uh, a couple of my classes where we make, like, homeless care kits for men and for women, right? Uh, where we have, like, instant coffee, socks, mittens, uh, maybe a loony or a toonie, like, something. We just throw in there, like, a dollar or two, um, you know, crackers, something that we can give to someone who's on the street that might make the difference between them, like, having a snack or having something to eat and not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for women, like, so we made care packages for men and then for women that had, like, um, tampons and pads because for women who's on the street or women who's, like, homeless, like, getting your period can completely, it could lead to infections, it could open you up to victimization. So just stuff like that, carrying snacks in your car, water bottles, tampons, whatever. Um, you know, doing research where you do your best to, to sort of put some of this information out there to talk to the local politicians uh, politicians at the federal level or at the provincial level, wh- wherever it is that you are. Um, you know, I've started doing this recently. Like, I just wrote a op- my first op-ed for um, for the Toronto Star, and I'm realizing that the one op-ed that I wrote has gotten more attention than my book and every other academic article I've written put together. <laughs> so, 
you know, that's kind of my approach where I'm going to write an op-ed for every academic piece that I write. Yeah. And eventually, maybe post-tenure when I have more time, write a policy brief where I can send to different nonprofit organizations with just suggestions. You know, I'm also trying to, like, talk to different policymakers that might be interested and, and collaborating. Um, so, you know, keep in mind that, or, or from the book, again, like, you know, look at some of the suggestions I make, and they're basically, like, low, like almost, they'll cost you almost nothing. And one of the main ones is you taking a kind and compassionate approach to dealing with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that that's important. Just to understand that the lives of these young people are hard. And, you know, you could literally scratch out Latna, just do like a Kataro F search and type in like another word for any marginalized community of color all over. So, you know, in Canada, we could talk about the experiences of First Nations women, Mexico, indigenous women, mm-hmm. different parts of the U.S., black and native women. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, again, Native women, like, talk about Burma, we could talk about the Rohingya, any marginalized, racialized, class-specific, or gendered minority, you could basically insert to the schema, and this is what the lives are like of, you know, of young, at-risk women. So, you know, I, I hope that people can apply some of this information and think about how it's relevant, not just in the context of Southern California and Latinas, but how it might be related to their community, and perhaps think about what they can do to help. Um, and that's just my general mantra in life, which is I can't worry about what's out of my control. I can't wait for someone else to do something. I can control what I can, and I'm going to do my best to focus in on that and to try to promote social change in a way that's that's manageable and digestible f- for me, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that you're doing this with this podcast and getting out this new information. And Thank um, you. I, I really appreciate you doing this. And additionally, like, one of the deputy editors at the New York Times said this, like, if you're a person with a PhD, if you're a well-educated person, it's a responsibility as pu- to become public intellectuals and to try to share some of the information that, that we've done. And so I think you're doing a wonderful job uh, by, by doing this here. Great. Thank you. And thank you again for joining us today. No um, yeah. Can you tell us what you're working on now, actually? Sure. So I got um, a couple of different projects. So uh, one is a collaboration with uh, my old mentor, Nikki Jones, and then... Uh, a colleague, uh, Jeff Raymond, who is at UC Santa Barbara. So Nikki's at UC Berkeley. And when I was a graduate student, we actually, um, I helped them collect data on a project that looked at police-citizen interactions in a couple different cities in the U.S. So San Francisco in particular, we did a ethnography project where we kind of like put on a bulletproof vest, put on a chest-mounted camera, and followed police to, to try to understand basically how police officers can de-escalate situations or potentially violent situations in non-violent ways. So... Uh, my piece of the pie is looking at how police officers understand and decide who has mental health issues and then how they negotiate interactions with folks that have that have are yeah that have like mental health issues so you know I'm working on a couple papers that just kind of like will try to inform police and the general public of like the do's and don'ts of you know interacting with folks that have mental health issues and trying to understand how uh, the identity of like ability or how ability inf- is influenced by race, class, gender, sexuality, just kind of like pushing uh, or using this um, intersectional framework. Um, the new project I'm doing that's specific to Canada is trying to get to the bottom of some of this like continued disappearance of uh, first continued missing and murder like First Nations women. Um, so I've done one interview for that and I'm starting to sort of like branch out. I'm starting in Ontario and then going from there. But I'm just trying to understand what are some of the dynamics that lead women to, to leave their homes, to put them, like, to go into high-risk situations. I, I mentioned hit, hitchhiking briefly. And then, you know, how criminal justice systems are responding to friends and family of these uh, of these individuals once they go missing. And then, you know, ideally trying to understand where they go. And I'm starting in Canada, and um, I want to work my way down eventually where I interview Native American women and reservations. And when I go down and uh, go further south to Mexico, in particular, there's this place called Ciudad Juarez. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Daisy Gonzalez, wrote a pretty amazing uh, master's thesis related to it about how, um, you know, there's like scores and scores of women that end up like murdered on the side of the road. So, you know, I want to try to trace some of these dynamics that happen first in Canada, then in the U.S., and then eventually in Mexico. And perhaps try to come up with like a cohesive explanation or a cohesive theory of you know, what, what's happening to some of these vulnerable women. Um, so there's that. And then the final piece I'm doing is going to be an, an edited piece that I'm toying, I'm toying with the idea of calling it like uh, exploring the ethnographic wound. 
So talking about the different trauma that researchers endure when they're doing field work and they're doing ethnography and try to shed light on some of like just like the physical, psychological, and emotional consequences and wounds that so we pick up along the way when when we're trying to do this work, when we become attached to different communities. So, you know, that's what I got going um, right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Those sound like really interesting projects. So today we've been talking with Jerry Flores about his book, Caught Up, Girls, Surveillance, and Wraparound Incarceration. Thank you again so much for being with us today, Jerry. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. And thank you again for your kind words about our podcast. We're pro-public sociology here. So. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.